I think of my job as as writing sentences and paragraphs, and I'm unhappy with most of the ones that I write. So most days are are、um, living with that failure and trying to make better ones. And I can't really, I usually can't move forward into new material, new chapters until I have a sense that I've I've, I've found out what I need to by finishing the thing that comes before it. There's such a power in community. Like I needed other people to say, like, yeah, I totally get what you're saying, because the world isn't waiting for more writers. The world isn't like, oh no, we don't have enough writers. Like we really have to do the work, and so we have to get over whatever blockage we have. This self doubt that's just so persistent, and that I have to fight, even though I'm like ten years into my writing and publishing career. It's like still this persistent voice that I have to fight. Hi, I'm Kevin Larmer, editor in chief of Poets and Writers, and I'm Melissa Falavino, the senior editor of Poets and Writers, and this is Ampersand, the Poets and Writers podcast. In this episode, we'll be talking to Adam Hazlitt, whose new novel *Imagine Me Gone* is published in May by Little Brown. We'll also be talking to Lee Stein, who's a poet, a writer, and the co-founder of Out of the Binders, a conference and community for women and gender non-conforming writers. We'll also be hearing new work from the amazing poet Brenda Shaughnessy, as well as a poem from Tayamba Jess, and so much more. So stick around. So we just released the seventh annual writing contests issue. We did, with a special section including a fascinating article about arts organizations that give grants and fellowships to writers, which offer not just cash but also time and space to write, professional development, meetings with publishers, and a lot of other really cool things. These organizations are taking a different approach to supporting writers.、Uh, they're making an investment in a writer's career and sticking with them longer than just the time it takes to hand them a check, which is really great.、Mm-hmm. Uh, we also have a listing of 25 first book contests that are open to poets and fiction writers, and we also have another installment of the Anatomy of Awards, which is a recurring feature that we do、um, that involves、uh, literally manually counting all of the grants and awards that we've listed in a previous year.、Um, it's a big job. It's a big job、yep. on the part of the poets and writers editorial staff, <laughs>、uh, but it always yields some interesting results,、mm-hmm. and this year was no exception. Um, so、uh, the number of contests that we listed last year went up. We listed 702 contests last year,、um, as has the amount of prize money, which actually reached above 7.5 million dollars. Right, which is amazing. A、um, lot of money for yep, poets and writers. Yep.、Um, Of course, with that, the average entry fee inched up a little bit too. It did. It went up by about fifty cents right,、uh, last some, year. Some inflation.、Mm-hmm, right.、Yep. Exactly. But、uh, also, the number of no fee contests also went up, which is good news. So、uh, check out those numbers. We also have a profile of Adam Hazlitt, whose new novel *Imagine Me Gone* is. It's brilliant. It is brilliant. It's devastating. Yeah, I loved loved reading it.、Uh, we both read it. We did. Probably easily one of the best books I've read、mm-hmm. in the past year.、Mm-hmm. I've been a fan of his work、uh, ever since I read his story collection,、uh, which is "You Are Not a Stranger Here," and that was a finalist for a Pulitzer Prize and a National Book Award.、Mm-hmm. Uh, he also has a novel, "Union Atlantic," which was winner of the Lambda Literary Award, 
and shortlisted for the Commonwealth Prize. But this new novel uh, is published by Little Brown, and um, it's heartbreaking, uh, but also just so well done. Um, you know, in the profile by Kevin Nance, the two of them talk about how he had to navigate a lot of really dark material. Um, mm-hmm. You know, he, he mentions that this is the most autobiographical thing he's ever written. Um, he's sort of processed his grief uh, about the loss of his father as well as his brother um, during the writing of this. But the novel really transcends that too. I yeah. mean, it's, it's clearly um, written from, you know, deep within, but, uh, but it's also just a, a great piece of literature. Yeah. So I gave him a call and we talked about his writing process and a little more about this new book. This call is now being recorded. So Adam, uh, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me. Sure. Glad to be doing it. Uh, you are the subject of a profile in our new issue by contributing editor Kevin Nance, uh, and it's time to the publication of your new novel, Imagine Gone, published in May by Little Brown. Um, I've read the book, and I have to say it really is a masterpiece. Uh, for, our, for our listeners who haven't had the pleasure, can you tell us a bit about the novel sort of in your own words? Sure. It's a novel about a family told from five different points of view that uh, – sort of sets out to ask the question, how far will you go to save the people you love the most? I think that's the question at the heart of it. Um begins with a, a mother recalling her fiancé being hospitalized for depression in the 1960s in London, and she faces the question of, should she go ahead with the marriage or should she back away? because of um, what it might, the pain it might cause her, and um, she decides to marry him. And what flows from there is is the story of the family and the three children, and particularly the eldest son, Michael, who is a music fanatic and a, a very anxious person and someone who understands the world through these sort of forms that he parodies. And it's the story of the family kind of caring and trying to manage Michael's um, precarious and kind of troubled existence. Now, the, the the book is broken into chapters, all told from the perspective of a different character. I wonder, uh, did you start with that format, or did it sort of present itself to you through the writing of the story? Uh, I think I knew that was going to be the form, um, just because... I've always been, even when I'm writing in third person, pretty committed to perspectivalism of one kind or another that experience is always had by someone. And so the, my last book, Union Atlantic, was all in third person. I think after writing that book, I was I was sort of glad to be uh, no longer in the third person. I was, I was hungering right. for writing again in the first person. So... And once, you know, I, I contemplated having some characters written from a third-person point of view, but in the end, it was really the distinction between the five voices that kind of made up the, the texture of the novel. So, um, yeah, it was pretty clear from the beginning. Now, I know you and uh, Kevin Nance talked quite a bit about the sort of autobiographical nature of some of the writing, and so I'll, I'll, I'll let our listeners read about that for themselves. And and they really should because it's it's fascinating and really moving how you, you navigated that material. Uh, but what I'd like to talk uh, about now is sort of your writing process. You know, it, you know, I, I I think of my job as as writing sentences and paragraphs, and I'm unhappy with most of the ones that I write. So hmm. um, most days are are um, living with that failure and trying to make better ones. Um, so and I can't really 
I usually can't move forward into new material, new chapters until I have a sense that I've, I've, I've found out what I need to by finishing the thing that comes before it. So, and there was a lot of this material that, as you mentioned, you know, that Kevin and his piece, um, I think we'll probably discuss, I haven't seen it, but, um, yeah. you know, that per- personal material that, um, made, uh, I think some of it not as difficult to figure out in terms of plot, but things I had to gird myself to, to get at. Yeah. 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 And so, so, the, so the writing of this, uh, this new novel was was uh, quite a bit different from from the writing of your other books. Um, I don't. Yeah, I mean, in terms of routine and you know, I've always written in the morning. Um, you know, I never do email or telephone or anything. You know, or in the news before writing. Um, you know, those sort of basic rhythms didn't change. Um, right. Uh, I think the. Um, the need to quiet the voices in my head from outside and absorb myself in the material uh, only went up. You know what I mean? It only got harder to do that, I think. But um, it was, in a way, all the more necessary. How about the stories? Now, I I assume that you were writing those in graduate school, and you and I were actually uh, at the Writers' Workshop in Iowa together. Um, But but did, did you start writing that story collection there? I started writing, well, one of them I had written, I was at the Fine Arts Work Center in Provincetown the year before I came to Iowa. So one of the stories uh, was written there, and then I wrote a number of them while I was at Iowa, and then I finished the collection when I was in law school, um, Uh and it was published, uh, I guess, the year before I graduated from law school. Okay. And is is writing stories something that you've continued to do, or or do you have multiple things going on at once, or or how do you... Uh, I've written some stories during the writing of this book. Um, You know, no no novelist works 52 weeks a year (laughs) on their novel. Um, So there are are seasons, you know, periods when you kind of flag and, you know, you need to back away. Uh, But that said, I tend to be kind of... uh, I'm not a multitasker. I mean, if, if I'm stepping away from it, it'll be for a while, and I'll do something else. But um, yeah, generally, uh, you know, as I would describe it, I've spent the last five years more or less full-time on the book. Okay. Now, you mentioned law school. Um, how do you feel that that you, – you know, you, you don't practice law um, no. currently, right? That, um, right? So how did that education kind of – inform or or not uh your sort of your writing um life well it's a bit like learning a new language i mean i went late enough uh in my you know mid to late 20s and already having done an mfa and been writing fiction that i don't think it um i could i could see it as a voice almost you know like the voice mm-hmm. of the judicial opinion the voice of the legal brief uh right. as opposed to you know, it ripping out, um, you know, stamping out some creative urge. Um, <laughs> right. But uh, I think the one thing that it did do, um, which is a mixed blessing, good in some ways, you have to kind of forget it in other ways, is the the, the uh, value placed on exactitude of a very literal kind, such that in a legal document, you're trying to write sentences that two parties could come who have diametrically opposite views and it won't be able to disagree on the meaning of the sentence. Um, oh, where you're trying to create impregnable sentences for yeah. the purposes of contracts or other things. And so that, I think it, it can, 
it, it certainly makes you examine sentences very, very closely because the implications have to be kind of watertight, but it also creates the illusion that there's any such thing as an impregnable sentence, you know, and a sentence right. that can't be interpreted in another way. And so I think it, the advantage is rigor, the disadvantage is, is uh, kind of tight-fistedness with language. Right. That's interesting that you mentioned the, the, the writing that, you know, two, um, two opposed viewpoints can disagree with, but then it, or uh, agree with by the end. Um, yeah. and I'm just thinking about this new, this new novel with these chapters that are told from different viewpoints. It's, it's interesting to hear you talk about that. Yeah. I mean, I guess there is, that was one of the tasks in the, in the writing of this was that, um, it's not so much Rashomon in as much as they're narrating they're moving through time, so, so each character is to some extent narrating a different piece of the story. But but there is there is definitely that that sense that was important to me that uh, that the same relationships for sure, right? Uh, and some of the same events are are viewed multiply and not and, and really none of them is, is a is a final interpretation of them. Right. Well, that's true. They don't. They the. Um the narrative that they are all, they're all furthering the same narrative. They're not, it doesn't overlap in right, terms of right. Uh, temporally, right? That's right. Yeah, no, it's all, they, they all sort of pick up the baton from right. each other, as it were, as the time moves on. Yeah. Well, it's it's really well done. I really just love Oh, love well, thank you. Thank yeah, you. Absolutely. Thank you. Are, are you working on anything now? Um, I am working on the sort of beginnings of a short novel and journalism. I'm not I'm a political junkie, and I've been doing a certain amount of political journalism. I just was down in South Carolina for the Republican primaries, and um, oh, uh, wow. uh, yeah, so so I do I do a certain amount of some political journalism and commentary. So I've been doing that as well. Okay. Well, Adam Hazza, thank you for talking with me about Imagine Me Gone. It, it really is an incredible book, and I wish you the very best of luck with it. Well, my pleasure. Thank you for, for interviewing me. So much synth. You want some more synth? I do. We have more synth. <laughs> uh, Brenda Shaughnessy, her fourth book, So Much Synth, uh, is out in May from Copper Canyon Press. I loved her first book, Interior with Sudden Joy, which was published by FSG, I think, back in 1999. Um, she's also written for us in the past uh, for the magazine. Back in 2012, uh, she wrote an essay with her husband, Craig Morgan Teicher. Uh, it was called Enduring Discovery, uh, and they wrote about marriage and parenthood and poetry. So we asked her to read from the new book, and we're going to listen to some of that now. How it is. It isn't every day I can wrap my mind around it. It being just what you'd think it is. Not a thing or a condition of being, but an extended body holiday. Its movements are like dance, but really more like fire, or cross signals cut before anyone got there. A flow through mind. A frank season so in love with some poor sister. The long star rattling its universe like a snake. If only I could gather eyefuls and throw them curvingly, with some accuracy, at what I couldn't bear to see before. Not just the body, 
but inside the insides, all the way in, till loved precious cells are cold neutral space again. Can I get a witness? Can I get a witness that way if it were not so unreliable? It again. It is always so unreliable. It doesn't know what it is and is all right with that. Isn't that strange? It surely isn't me. I wouldn't be all right with not knowing. Not it. That narrows it down, I suppose. Not it. Just keep saying that, eliminating. What's left will will its way into it, will scare me to pieces, which it will then not pick up, but leave for someone else to deal with, as I am doing now with this mess here. We also have an article by Lee Stein about imposter syndrome. Imposter syndrome, yes. Um, which is the phenomenon that no doubt most writers have felt uh, at some point in their career, mm-hmm. uh, wherein no matter how successful you are, how many books you have out, um, how many articles you've written, you still feel like somehow it's a fluke, mm-hmm. like uh, you are a fraud, and at some point someone is going to discover your fraudulence. Um, so Lee Stein wrote an article about this phenomenon. Uh, she has a poetry collection, a novel. She's got a memoir coming out this fall. Very prolific writer herself. Uh, she's also the co-founder of the nonprofit organization Out of the Binders. Which is a reference to Mitt Romney, right? When he yes. said in 2012 that he's got binders full of women. Binders full of women, yes. So um, this organization was founded uh, to serve women writers out of the binders. Um, So they have a biannual conference. They just had one in L.A., um, and there will be one in November in New York City. Um, It's a great organization, a great community for women writers. So I gave Lee a call, uh, and we talked about the article and a little bit more about the binders, and we are going to listen to that right now. Lee Stein, thank you for talking to me today. Thank you for um, having me. So you have written this fascinating essay for the new issue about writers and imposter syndrome. So I'm curious to know a little bit more about, you know, when you first started experiencing this phenomenon, um, how you've learned to overcome it or at least manage it, um, how it may still affect your work. Yeah, it's it's. I think a lot of writers can relate to this feeling of, I feel like on the one hand, I have a really big ego about my work and I just feel like Mm -hmm. an underappreciated genius and I'm like (laughs) toiling away um, on this whatever project. And then on the other hand, something about like getting paid for my writing, like clicks this switch in my brain that's like, oh no, well now there's so much pressure. Like I'm no longer the underappreciated genius. I'm like this fraud that somehow slipped in. And someone wants to pay me for my work. And somehow it, and this is something I discovered as I was writing the essay, it like took a different turn. And only then did I realize like my feeling of being a fraud increases in direct proportion to how much money I'm being paid for something. (laughs) And it's a really frustrating um, feeling, especially because ironically, you know, I run an organization that's all about advancing the careers of women writers and getting us paid for our work. 
And here right. I am feeling like I'm undeserving. Right. And I've, I found that, that part really um, particularly interesting that you say that um, the more you're getting paid for a piece, the more it kind of intense this feels. And some, something about that is, is really fascinating to me. And in, in that section in the article, um, you mentioned this idea of undervaluing our work and that all, all writers to some extent, sort of most writers probably feel this, but that this is perhaps experienced more acutely by women um, and that there was this study at Stanford, was it? I think um, so. Yeah, where um, this uh, behavioral scientist did a, did an experiment um, on, on male and female students, asked them to write an essay, and then asked those students to say how much they should be paid to write that essay, right? Right, um, like how much would they value this piece of writing? And and I think women right. under women valued it 18% less than the male students did. Which is like really striking. That's a really, that's a significant number. And um, I see this, and I'm like, you know, on the one hand, I don't want to say, like, all women do this, all women do that. But right. I found something that's helped me is, like, um, my co-chair for uh, the Binders, my organization, Lux Elftrom. Mm-hmm. She's very different than me, and she's always texting me, like, oh, I got this assignment, and they offered X, and I negotiated for Y. And she's always yeah. telling me, and I think this, um, trans- it's like a combination of transparency and cheerleading that mm-hmm. is really inspired me to push back sometimes and ask for what I'm worth. It's really hard to ask for more money or to ask for a different contract. I always feel so nervous, like, oh, no, but then the editor isn't going to like me. They aren't going to want to work with me again because they're going to think I'm not nice. And I think that's a very female reaction. So I think it helps me to have people in my corner as role models who are women and who are pushing Mm -hmm. back and asking for what they're worth. Mm Mm-hmm. So has the work that you have been doing with Out of the Binders, do you feel like there has been a kind of measurable increase in your ability to just feel that worth more intrinsically as you become more, you know, invested in in this work and in the work of other women and and gender nonconforming writers? Yeah, it's funny. It's like a lesson I keep having to learn myself is that I need to do for myself what I do for others. So I'm really good at cheerleading other people in the same way that Lux is a cheerleader for me. Like I'm like, go for it. Ask for, you know, the $50 bomb. Somehow it's easier to like root for others than to root for yourself. So I'm seeing all the time in the private Facebook communities we organize. I'm seeing all the time like women cheerleading each other for asking for the raise or asking for the bump in pay or asking for the bump in hourly. And I think as it it really is a movement and we all have to work on it together because it's such a, it's such a societal problem that isn't going to be solved by me personally getting better at it or you personally getting better at it. We all have to do it. Yeah, absolutely. I was going to say another interesting thing before I submitted the essay to you, I, I workshopped it with my writing group in Connecticut and cool. um, my friend Sandy, who's in the group, said, oh, my God, like, I didn't know that white women felt this. She's like, I just thought mm-hmm. I felt this because I'm a woman of color. And so that's like a whole other layer, yeah. too, yeah. is that she was surprised that I would feel that way as a white woman because I have a certain yeah. privilege. Um, but it yeah. still affects me. Right. With Out of the Binders, with the conference, um, have you talked to other writers about this? Yeah, like when I when I started the organization in 2014 and we wanted to do conferences, um, I was just looking at the Vita pie charts and thinking like, well, what do we do? Like, what are the 
what are all the reasons that these pie charts exist? Are women not submitting? Do women not know editors? Are women insecure? So we tried to address this problem of gender inequality from multiple angles. And one of the things we did was actually have a workshop at our first conference led by Sherry Amatenstein, who's actually the expert I quote in my article. So mm-hmm. she did a whole workshop at our first conference called Feeding the Writer's Ego. And it was extremely inspiring for a lot of people who said they just feel, you know, too overwhelmed by rejection to even start, or they're too consumed with jealousy of their friends' successes. And um, mm. she said to one of those writers, something like, every day you're feeding yourself a little dose of poison by being so mm-hmm. jealous that you can't submit your own work. So mm. a lot of this stuff is really deep and psychological, um, mm-hmm. in, in addition to all these societal assumptions or roles that women are playing. So it really is this, like, multifaceted problem that needs to be addressed from multiple angles if we're going to reach parity. It's interesting, the, the idea of, of, of submitting as it relates to this feeling of imposter syndrome or fraudulence or just sort of, you know, crippling insecurity about, about our work. There's an, I know there's an organization in L.A. called Women Who Submit. Yes, they're doing yeah. that at our L.A. conference. One of the, I think she's a founding member or just an early member, Melissa Chadburn, wrote an article last year, I think, for us about that group. And she touched on that, like sort of the, um, so that there's, you know, this, this, this uh, group that gets together, you know, on a regular basis and they submit their work together and um, they share with each other where they're submitting and like they literally get into the same space, get on their computers, submit their work and like cheer every time someone submits, you know, so some, you know, one of the writers will be like, I, you know, just sent my work to Ken House and then everyone will like, erupt in applause. And um, she said that what happens is that, you know, just that kind of repeated cheerleading, like you said, really just builds confidence. And even if they're getting rejections, they start sort of celebrating those rejections because they're at least sending the workout. And just the process of doing the act of doing that helps them feel like, you know, I'm actually like this work is of value. My work is of value, and those some of those feelings of insecurity start to dissipate. Yeah, I think there. Yeah. I think you know, there's such a power in community. Like even me sharing my essay with my writing workshop before I sent it to you. Like I needed that. I needed other people to say, like, yeah, I totally get what you're saying, because mm-hmm. the the world isn't like the world isn't waiting for more writers. The world isn't like, oh no, we don't have enough writers. Like, right. We right. we really have to do the work. You know, if we want our work out there, we have to submit. And so we have to get over whatever blockage we have, whether that's like me emailing, like emailing an editor at the New York Times and then the next day being like, oh, my God, what have I done? I should have never <laughs> sent that email. You know, like this, <laughs> this self-doubt that's just so persistent and that I have to fight, even though I'm like 10 years into my writing and publishing career. It's like still this persistent voice that I have to fight. Right. Well, we really appreciate the essay, and um, I think it's something that certainly a lot of writers experience. And I'm yeah. sure there are men that can relate to it, too. You know, like, I have a very uh, specific experience of it, but I know it can strike any writer. <laughs> At any time. <laughs> At any time, beware. <laughs> okay, excellent. Well, thank you so much for talking to us, Lee. Lee Stein is the author of, uh, let's see, you've got a poetry collection, right? 
Yes, and I have a poetry section called Dispatch from the Future and a novel called The Fallback Plan, and my memoir is coming out in August from Plume, and it's called Land of Enchantment. Everybody keep your eyes peeled for that, and uh, check out an Out of the Binders conference, because it's a really awesome community. Um, thanks, Melissa. Yeah, thanks, Lee. One of this issue's page one authors is the poet Tayemba Jess, whose second collection, Olio, is out this month from Wave Books. Right. And uh, Tayemba Jess, of course, is no stranger to poets and writers. He was among the poets that we included in our very first debut poets roundup back in 2005 uh, when he published Lead Belly. And he's also written uh, for us in the past. He interviewed the poet Willie Perdomo for us back in 2014, which was an excellent interview. Um, and the second book, uh, Olio, is really interesting. It's sort of a uh, an ode to uh, American blues, work songs, and church hymns. And he uses a lot of different kinds of form, including sonnet, song, and narrative, to examine the lives of unrecorded African-American performers mm. um, directly before and after the Civil War and up to World War I. So we asked Tayemba to read a few poems from that book, and we are going to hear some of them now. My name is Tayemba Jess, and I'm going to be reading some poems from my new book entitled Olio. John William Boone, also known as Blind Boone, was born in 1865 and uh, lived to 1927. He ended up being one of the uh, most famous ragtime piano players of his day. And when he uh, was born in 1865, he was quite healthy, but at six months, he got infected with encephalitis, swelling of the brain. The only remedy at the time was removal of the eyes. And this poem is entitled, Blind Boone's Blessings. Bless the fever in that night, in the sixth month of my life. Bless the fever, for it gave me sight. It swore my brain to fit God's gift. It brought the hand that would lift each eye from my infant skull. Bless the sweat my baby ball. Bless the horse that hauled the surgeon through dusk's dark, half drunk and swearing into mine. Bless the flame that sterilized the metal of the spoon. Bless the path between lid and bone slipped and slid by that instrument of my deliverance from sight. Bless the handling of the knife. Bless that night that gave me night, wrapped it round my bloody face, whispered how I could be grace notes, arpeggios, a piano roll of sound, copying each note from everything around me. You see, I'm sure at first there was the hurt 
and the scalding pain. But then again, bless an infant's too short memory. All I know is what lies beyond light. I've learned this is what's right for this one right here. Yes, bless the fever. Then listen close. Spare an ear to this piano and shut your eyes closed. This last one is loosely based on a kind of showdown that happened to between Blind Boone and the Player Piano Company. This is Blind Boone's Pianola Blues. They said I wasn't smooth enough to beat their sharp machine. That my style was obsolete, that old rags had lost their gleam and lunge. All I had left was a sucker punch that couldn't touch their invisible piano man with his wind-up, gutless guts of paper rolls. And so, I went and told them that before the night was through, I'd prove what the son of an ex-slave could do. I dared them to put on their most twisty tune, to play it double time while I listened from another room past the traffic sounds of the avenue below, to play it only once, then to let me show note for note how that scroll made its roll through Chopin or Bach or Beethoven's best. And if I failed to match my fingers and ears with the spinning gears of their pneumatic piano scholar, I'd pay them the price of a thousand dollars. And what was in it for Boone, you might ask? Might be the same thing that drives men through mountains at heart attack pace. Might be just to prove some tasks ain't meant to be neatly played out on paper and into air, but rather should tear out from lung, heart, and brain with a flare of flicked wrist and sly smile above the 88s. And of course, that ever-human weight of pride that swallows us when a thing's done just right. But they were eager to prove me wrong. They chose the fastest machine with the trickiest song and stuck it in a room far down all from me. They didn't know how sharp I can see with these ears of mine. I caught every note, even though they played it in triple time. And when I played it back to them even faster, I could feel the violent stares. Her heard one mutter, lucky black bastard. And that was my cue to rise, to take a bow in their smoldering silence and say, not luck, my friend, but science of touch and sweat and stubborn old toil. I bet these ten fingers against any coil of wire and parchment and pump. And I left them there to ponder the wonders of blindness as I walked out the door into the heat of the sun. And that's it for this episode. Tune in next time when we'll be talking about the July-August issue. Right, the agents issue. Yes. We'll also be having our 16th annual debut fiction roundup. 16th annual. Yeah. We'll be looking at the uh, the summer's best first fiction. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's kind of been conference season around here. It has been. Here. There's been a lot of travel. A lot of travel. I was in uh, San Francisco not too long ago where I met with a lot of great folks and started planning the next Poets and Writers Live event. Mm-hmm. Uh, really exciting. It's going to be our first two-day conference, 
and that's coming in January 2017. Stay tuned for more details. Uh, and of course, I was uh, just in LA for the AWP conference. Right, AWP. And I was in Ann Arbor, Michigan mm-hmm. for the Voices of the Middle West conference. What was that like? It was really cool. It, it's put on by Midwestern Gothic, the literary journal, and the University of Michigan. And it's a great one-day conference um, dedicated to Midwestern writers. It was very cool. If you're a writer in the Midwest, I would definitely recommend checking it out. Love it. And you're going to Iceland. I am. Actually, by the time this hits your ears, <laughs> I will be in Reykjavik. I am going to the Iceland Writers' Retreat. Awesome. Yep. And I'm going to be giving a uh, lecture on publishing at the University of Iceland. And Cheryl Strait is going to be there. And Miriam Taves is going to be there. And Adele Waldman. And a whole bunch of Icelandic authors who I do not know, but I am really excited to meet. That's excellent. Yeah. And there are like geothermal pools in Iceland. There's volcanoes there. Volcanoes. <laughs> the Northern Lights. Yeah, it's going to be great. Maybe we'll hear a little bit more about it uh, on the next episode. Maybe. I have to tune in. percent. The Poets and Writers Podcast. Ampersand is a production of Poets and Writers, Inc., the nation's largest nonprofit organization serving creative writers. Ampersand is edited by Melissa Falavino with assistance from Jonathan Walsh. Music for this episode was provided by Poddington Bear, Gumble, Wild Flag, and Vallea Vallea. Subscribe to Ampersand on iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud, or through our website, where you'll find photos, articles, and ephemera for each episode at pw.org forward slash ampersand.